If you have a Bible, we're going to go back to James chapter 1, and we'll read verses 2 through 12. Father, I just ask you that you'll open your word up to us, Lord, and you'll speak to us. This is the place, Lord, that we've gathered together to hear your voice and to hear your word. And so I just ask you'll give us today, all of us, what we need to walk more faithfully to you, Lord, and uh, to see that you are the true riches. Thank you that you'll do that for us and speak to us and that your presence will be here. We humbly ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. James 1, beginning in verse 2, James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces endurance or works patience, but let endurance have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. But if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, and the flower thereof fails, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. And so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endures temptation or trial. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. The main theme we've seen so far that we've looked at in the book of James is that life is full of various trials all different kinds. And we've all experienced them. The thing is, there's no getting away from that fact whether you're a saint or a sinner. Now, for a sinner, it's not going to be a trial, but troubles and tribulation are just a lot of people. So the Christian, though, we're saying is called to have an entirely different outlook than somebody from the world. We're to do what? We're to consider. We're to count it. We're to look at this situation and not let it overwhelm us, but we're to do what? We're to count it all joy. Not because what we're going through makes us feel happy. It's probably just the opposite of that. But we said we need to see the end result of what's happening. We need to kind of get a bird's eye view, get above our situation, so to speak, and see what God is doing. So he is in a trial that we're going through, whatever it is, and there's different kinds. He's trying to produce two things, James tells us. And the first thing he's trying to produce is endurance. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, it produces endurance. And that's the ability to hold up under pressure and not give in, to be able to face the storms of life that are coming our way. That's what trials will do, is we endure them and hold up under them. And the other thing he's trying to do is he's trying to bring us to have spiritual maturity. That's what trials are designed to do. So he wants us to have proven godly character. That's what he's trying to develop in us through all these things we don't like. There's a good outcome in it. He wants us to be... It says, mature and complete Christians. So we'll sing that song, to be like Jesus. Well, that's what trials do. They'll make you that way. So when you're singing that song, that's the way it happens. It's through the trials we go through. 
thing is, though, we got into a lot of times when we have trouble getting in trial, getting in troubles, we have trouble seeing the point of it all, don't we? We're like, why is this happening to me? This doesn't make sense. Why am I going through this? And we're saying James realizes that and he knows we're all going to be in that place. And so what do we need? We need the wisdom of God. We know that God's hands in this, but we just don't know what the next step we should take is. Sometimes biblically, you could look at something and say, well, I could see this would be a biblical way to go, but this would be too. And I just don't know which is the right one. And I want to do the right thing. I want to please the Lord. God promises that he will give us that wisdom. He says what we need to do is ask for it, though, don't we? And he says he'll give it to us because James says he is the giving God and he'll generously give us the answers we need. He's saying God is committed to helping us. He's wholeheartedly and he has an intent. When you ask him to help you, it's like his intention is just focused on you. He'll give you everything you need. You have his full attention. That's what it's saying there. And he's like, I've got infinite resources. I've got a total concern for you as my child. And it says he will give it. He promises that you need wisdom and you ask him for it and you trust him. He says he will give it. And it says he won't upbraid you or revile you. So in other words, you're not going to hear him say you again. This is the fifth time. Or you're not going to hear him say, how much wisdom do you need for this particular trial? You know, there, there's only like so many ways to skin a cat. And I've already showed you four of them. How much more wisdom do you need? Here's what we got to trust. And this is just in faith in general. Okay. A faith principle in general. We have got to fully trust that God, whether we feel like it or not, we can't go by our feelings, whether we feel his presence with us. We have to fully trust that he is concerned about us and has good intentions for us. You've just got to believe that. Oh, James, at the end there, he cautions us, though. God is committed to us. He said, we just got to trust that. But we have to be as committed to him as he is to us. We have to be as committed to receiving, in this case, in James, it's wisdom. But it can be anything. Wisdom, healing, spiritual growth, whatever it is you need. Help to overcome your anger in situations, stress, tension, whatever it is. We've got to be as committed that he is going to help us and give us what we need as he is to us. What do we say? We can't be too sold. We can't be looking this way. Yeah, Lord, I'm looking to you. I know you're going to give me what I mean. And then wait a minute. The world's offering me another solution here. We can't be looking both ways like that. We have to be fully committed to him. We have to have our heart fixed on God and trusting in his faithfulness. Isn't that what we said? And the Bible assures us over and over and over that if a person has their heart right towards the Lord, he will never let us down, will he? Because I'll quote this verse again. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He's looking, in other words, to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is completely his, or you could say devoted to him. That's God. That's our God. That's the God we serve. He's looking to help us out. We don't have to twist his arm. And sometimes I think we think we do. The verses we're going to look at today, 9, 10, and 11, there's a lot of commentators out there. They act like James is just a hodgepodge of things that are just kind of thrown aimlessly together. And I don't think it's quite that way. They'll say, you know, these verses 9 to 11 are kind of unrelated. But I think they are related to the topic of trials. I think it's a continuation of what he's already been talking about, this need for wisdom and trials. 
So what I think he's doing here is James is saying, I'm going to give you a, an illustration of what I'm talking about. You know, a lot of times preachers, they'll talk about something and like, well, here's an illustration to illustrate the point I'm trying to make. And I think that's what James is doing here. So he's addressing two different groups that are in contrasting circumstances. He's addressing the lowly or the poor, and he's also addressing the rich because both situations can be trials. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I think I'd love to have a trial of being rich. At least for three months. You know, just let me swap my car, my bank account, my house <laughs> with a rich man and see at the end of three months I'm not smiling. Or at least, as they say, laughing all the way to the bank. You might think that, but the Bible makes it pretty clear that prosperity is just a great a trial as poverty. Maybe bigger. Because we'll see later on, prosperity poses a serious threat. There are serious warnings in Deuteronomy all through the Bible that when you get rich and you get blessed, you need to be careful of a couple things. Number one, that you think it was your wisdom, your work, your smarts that gave you all this blessing. And it's like, you need to realize God gave you the power to have whatever you had. It all came from him. And the other thing is, you better beware lest you get so consumed in everything you have that you forget God. And Israel did that. And we have warnings, like I said, Old and New Testament. Because what that prosperity does, it's a serious threat to having a committed life to the Lord. It is. It is. James here, he's addressing churches. More than one, these people have scattered I think that's who he's addressing, scattered Jews. They've been scattered from Jerusalem. They're spread out, forming different churches. And he's addressing the rich and the poor that in these churches, they mingle together. Look over in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Look what it says. He says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. So they're both in there. Rich and poor, but the rich are despising the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? So he's saying, wait a minute, look up. Listen up, y'all. Hearken. Listen up and look around. Can't you see that God has chosen the poor? You know, this church, our church, most churches, if they're <laughs> some country club churches, maybe it's not the case. I'd say most churches that preach the Bible, they're not filled with the rich and famous. Not for the most part. There may be a few there. And James said, that's the problem. You're giving them some kind of special treatment. But he's saying, look around. The majority that God has chosen are in the poor category, if you want to put it that way. So he's saying, and your view, this is what he's dealing with. Your view of riches and poverty is warped. And you need to have wisdom, whichever way you fall. I'm saying heavenly wisdom is needed to have a biblical view of wealth. Because the biblical view seems radical, at least to the world. Nobody else is going to see it the way a Christian is going to see it. But it will be right. It'll be radical and it'll be right because it'll be God's viewpoint. So our culture, I'm telling you, the people in the world in our culture, they would hear what James is saying here in this verse and they would mock it. They'd be like, that guy that is barely paying his bills has nothing to rejoice about. And they would also look at it like, well, why would the rich and the socially upright, why would they want to mingle with the lowly? 
Now, I've been around enough of the rich and the upright that they generally don't want to mingle too much with the lowly. And I'm not saying everyone's like that, but a lot of them are. It's just kind of the way it is. And he's saying, hey, when that attitude and that outlook are brought into the church, there's a problem. But James says, I have a solution. <laughs> he says, what we need to have is some boasting. And you're thinking to yourself, man, when I hear about boasting, you think, what? Man, I can't stand people that boast. I mean, I don't. I remember one time we are in the baseball park up there, and this guy comes around. I didn't know who he was, one of the coaches. He's just a big mouth, kind of boasting a lot. And I'm like, man, that dude just gets on my nerves. Well, part of it is I just didn't know him. Because once I got to know him, I love that guy. He's a great guy. I'm just saying, that's kind of my reaction, you know. And James is saying, you got to have boasting. And he's saying, no, no, no. You don't understand. It is the answer. We need more boasting on both sides. It's just got to be the right kind of boasting. Because that's what the word in King James, in verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice. That's what that word rejoice means. It means to boast, to take pride in something, to glory or to brag. That's what it's saying. And what's the one thing that both the rich and the poor are to glory or to boast about in? What's the one thing that unites them? What is the one thing? They can boast of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them. Amen? That's what they can boast about. And that's the one thing that you and I can brag about and not apologize. That's the one time we can boast and not have to feel bad about it. Jeremiah 9.23 says this, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let he who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. And here's what he knows, because he's experienced it, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. If you know that about your Lord and you've experienced it, he's saying that's something you can boast about and you don't have to apologize about it. So look here in James 1 verse 9. Look what it says. He says, let the brother of low degree rejoice or boast in that he is exalted. And this is one of James's, I believe it's 60 commands or imperatives that he gives here. And so what he's saying is, let the brother that's on the lowest rung of the social ladder boast that he is really at the top. Now, I don't know what your translation says. The King James says the brother of low degree. I know the new King James, some people have that. It will say lowly brother. The NIV, if you have that, will say the one of humble circumstances. So the origin of the word, though, no matter what your translation is, it just means you're just a little bit above the ground. You're basically right down there on the ground is what that word means, the lowly, not rising far from the ground. And I'm saying, I got to thinking about this, the lowest rung on the social ladder. Well, in the wintertime, back when we used to paint new houses, the lowest rung was the one we'd be in mud and get it all over our shoes. I mean, that's where you wiped all your mud on. It's the lowest rung. It got treated, though. It was a mess. By the time you got to the top, everything was clean and cool and all that. So that's where you're at, the lowest rung. Somebody that's in the dust is what it means. That's what it came to mean, humble, of humble circumstances. And, you know, really, think about this. That same word is used of our Lord when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He says, for I am meek and 
lowly in heart. It's the same word. You think about that. That's our Lord. The exalted risen Jesus Christ says, you can come and learn of me and take my yoke upon you. My burden is like, because I am meek and I am lowly at heart. That's an invitation there, isn't it? I think it is. So James is saying that the brother that's in humble circumstances, and he's talking about the poor, is to glory in that. He's saying you're to glory that you're at the top. You're exalted. And that means it means to be in a position of high status. Now, if you're just looking and only talking about in economic terms, that's not true, is it? It's not true at all. But in spiritual terms, we have to look at it like this. A poor brother or sister, a poor Christian, a believer, has more wealth and is exalted far above the most idolized and wealthy unbeliever. I mean, there is absolutely no comparison. And I'll say, our groups, Brother Hamilton really was not this way, though. So I'm saying we tend to look down on the poor like, well, if you had faith, or your faith should be stretching. I mean, that's fine, okay? I don't have any trouble with that God will meet your needs and all that. But the Bible never puts down poor people. It doesn't. Now, if you're poor because you don't work and you're lazy, that's a whole other ballgame. You know, we had somebody here one time that was a garbage collector. He's not going to be driving the newest car and living in the nicest house. And if God's called him to be a garbage collector, what's wrong with that? Is that a put down to him? Should he be like, you know, we've got to slip him some money so he can go to college and get a better education? That's where he's at and that's what he's doing. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's what James is talking about here. Like I said, it's just the opposite. Proverbs 15, 16 says this, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Proverbs 16, 8 says, better is little with righteousness than vast revenues with injustice. Proverbs 28, 6 says, better is the poor that walks in his integrity than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. So look again. We read it once. Let's look at it again. Look over there in James 2, 5 and 6. He says, hearken, listen up, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen who? The poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him. So the poor are the ones God's chosen, made them rich in faith. And it's the ones that he'll exalt in the end. Mm-hmm. So am I saying in saying all that that you can't trust God to provide all your needs, whatever they are? I didn't say that. Or there's anything wrong. I mean, I'm not driving something that's 25 years old right now. But I have driven some pretty old vehicles. Man, it got quiet and it's quiet in here. So somebody's having trouble with what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm not saying what you think I'm saying. I don't guess. I don't know. Maybe I am. So it's not always the looks on people's faces, but I can sense things inside here that I'm getting a little, somebody's not liking it, but that's all right. So anyways, in Luke 1, 51 to 53, he says this, he says, he has showed strength with his arm. This is Mary when she meets Elizabeth and it's her praise song. He has showed strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent away the rich empty handed. 
So in God's kingdom, everything is reversed. And so James here, he tells the poor and lowly brother or sister to boast or glory because he says they have found favor in God's eyes and he will exalt them. I heard a guy give this illustration. I thought it was good. The book of Ruth pictures that perfectly. Naomi and Ruth in chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, they come back to Israel. The two of them come back and they had nothing when they came back. When Naomi came back, the women of the town she lived in, they meet her and they said, is this Naomi? Because she probably didn't look very good. She'd been through a lot. Is this Naomi? You know, Naomi means pleasant. That's what her name means. And here was her answer. She says, don't call me Naomi. She says, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. She said, call me bitter. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Listen to this. She says, I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. So she comes back with Ruth. They're broke and it's two single women. That is like the worst and as low as it could get in that society. Because a single woman, she's going to get married as quick as she can because men were the one that provided. A single woman is going to have trouble making it in all kinds of ways. Socially and economically, they are at the bottom of the scale, so to speak. And so one day, if you start reading chapter 2, Ruth goes out and is going to glean the fields. That's the equivalent of going out and you see these people going out and they're going to collect aluminum cans for a nickel a can and they're going to try to get enough of them together and put them in the machine to get lunch money, I guess. I mean, you're going to have to collect a whole lot of cans to get much, right? That's what she's doing, the equivalent of that. And she goes out into Boaz's field and she's gleaning. And he comes, it says, from Bethlehem. And who is this woman? And they said, oh, that's the one that came back with Naomi, came back with her. And he sees her, sees helpless, poor Ruth. And guess what? She finds favor in his sight, doesn't she? And he tells the man, he said, wait a minute, you don't touch her, and I want you to leave bundles of barley for her. You leave her a ton of stuff there. Make it easy on her. Let her get a lot. And that's what they do. She's blessed abundantly because at the end, what she took on to Naomi was enough for two women to eat for two weeks. It was a lot. And Naomi's like, where did you get that? Who's the one that gave you that? And she tells her. But here's what Ruth said to Boaz. When he told her, he said, you stay here. You eat lunch with me and drink, take all you want, and then the men won't touch you. And you stay in my fields and glean. I'll make it more than worth your while. And she says this. She says, well, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, a foreigner? In other words, she's saying, what is there about me that would catch the eye of a wealthy and important person like you? What is that? Boaz says, I've heard about you. I heard you left all. You, you've come and you're helping your mother-in-law. But not only that, you left your God, you left your country, and you've come here to the God of Israel. You've left all to follow him. And Ruth says this to him. She says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not even have the standing of one of your servants. She's below that, she's saying. She's a foreigner. She's from Moab. 
they're under a curse as far as technically the law goes. She's broke and she's a single woman. And yet she says, you're treating me better than I deserve. And I'm saying Boaz is a type of Christ, isn't he? That's what it's pointing to. So he looks with pity and has mercy on the poor, doesn't he? Doesn't the Lord do that? That is what God does. I'm saying that's what the Bible says. That's who fills the true churches are the poor. Hannah prayed this for Samuel too. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. And he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. Isn't that what we read in James? Let the brother of low degree, the lowly, humble circumstances is what it means. Doesn't have anything. He says, let him rejoice. Let him boast. Not because he's got anything to boast of materially, but because God has exalted him spiritually. That's what he's talking about. And that's what our boast should be. And so I'm saying the Lord Jesus Christ found us in our poverty and showed us favor, right? And it wasn't because, at least for me, I didn't have any social position at the time he saved me. There was nothing about me, socially, spiritually, or any other way to have him to have mercy on me. So like I said, the church doesn't grow with the rich. It's stocked with the poor. And that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. I'm going to say this. I'm saying the saints in the underground church in China, they are never going to live like the poorest member of this church does. They aren't. Does that mean, like I said, that they can't trust the Lord to provide their needs? They can, can't they? Amen. Whatever it is they need. Does that mean, though, that they have no faith when they live in the... I mean, that's easy for us to say because we can go out and work a lot of overtime, go to college, get a job. And it's, those people don't have those kind of opportunities. So you're not going to go to the underground church in China and find them meeting, driving up in their Cadillacs and meeting and all. It's not going to happen. That's not the reality. I'm saying, does that mean that they don't have faith? I don't think that's what that means at all. Because I think that's not the priority the Bible places on wealth and riches. It's just the opposite. That's the point I'm trying to make. That's the point I'm trying to make because I think it's the point the Bible makes. So there's many poor believers in the early church. And the church didn't tell them, look, you all just need to work harder. You need to exercise your faith more and you'll be blessed. I'm saying that is not the case. You all need to listen up here. So in Acts chapter 2, in the early church, listen, Acts 2, 44 to 45, it says, And all that believed were together. That's the rich and poor. And it said, And had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and listened to what they had to do and parted them to all men as every man had needs. There were poor people there that had needs. We have people like that in our church. That doesn't make them any lesser or any lack of faith or anything else, does it? 
Because they're exercising faith, and it may be we need to exercise faith because we're going to see that in James. It says you got faith, and you see somebody have a need, and you have the need to make it. Your faith being exercised is you're going to meet that need. Kind of works both ways, doesn't it? <laughs> Listen to Acts 4, 34 to 35. He says, neither was there any among them that lacked. And here's why. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the prices of the things that were sold, laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. There were those there that had needs. In 2 Corinthians 8, the Macedonians, those people in Jerusalem were in a big trial. There's a lot of poor people there, a lot of poor saints. They need help. And Paul commends them. He says, the Macedonians, he's writing to the Corinthians, they didn't have a lot of money themselves. But they somehow managed to scrape up money to give, to give relief to the people in Jerusalem. Now, you can't say those people in Jerusalem didn't have any faith. They had faith. And they also had a need. There was poor people there that needed help. They had a drought that took place. And that's why, look, those saints down in Houston that were helping out and the poor or whatever, I'm saying, I think as best we can, we have an obligation to help them out. Amen. The federal government, like Aaron said, you know, they're promising $160 billion. There'll probably actually only be $60 billion, maybe six, that actually filters its way through to get there to help. I mean, that's going to be groups like ours. I, when they had that tornado up in Indiana a few years back, Went up there, I'm saying it was the church groups that were helping these people out. And I went with one of my kids on that. And I'm saying, went to this poor guy's house. He had no money. He couldn't rebuild himself. Totally open to hearing the gospel, which I shared with him. That group wasn't all about that, but I did. And man, that guy was just so thankful. Just so thankful. But this is like maybe a month or two after the whole thing happened. Most people weren't up there helping anymore. But there's still people that need help. So I'm saying if we're going to do it and share the gospel, I'm 100% behind that. Or if there's rich saints or a church or poor saints or a church that are poor, I'm saying, you know, how many of you in here could afford to have your houses demolished and you got all the money to put it back together again with no insurance? No way. So the point is we shouldn't despise the poor or those in need. We should be willing to help. And I'm saying whoever is poor, they don't need to feel like they're less just because they need help. Because notice here, if you look at James 9, he doesn't say let the brother of low degree work a little harder so he can pull himself up by his bootstraps. Does he say that? Instead, what does he say? He says, wait a minute, you're poor. Don't worry about that. Doesn't it say with food and raiment we are to therewith be content? I think it still does say that. And then he's not saying that's a permanent position for this, but whatever, you know. But I mean, there are people that are in a position to have a need and they're poor at that point. And he's saying, don't let that get you down. Don't let that bother you. That's what I see James saying here. But boast. You have a boast. Don't get discouraged. You have a boast that you're exalted in God's kingdom in his eyes. Like Boaz, he's looked with favor on you. And he'll bless you in that way. So that's the wisdom I say that James is saying a poor person needs. They have to have their spiritual eyes open to see. They've been lifted to a lofty spiritual position in Christ. That's the wisdom he's saying. The world may look down on you. Even other believers, God forbid, may look down on you, consider you a nobody. But he's saying that doesn't matter. In the eyes of God, you are in a position of great spiritual dignity and honor. And he's saying, boast in that. 
That's what James is saying. And so I'm saying, so we got people at different levels of prosperity in here. And I know how it is. It can be sometimes discouraging. You're working hard, you're diligent, and you still just don't have a lot to show for it. And it can be a trial, oppressive and disheartening at times. And I'm saying, look, for most of the years, I worked 30 some years working as a contractor. I didn't have a bank roll. My dad's all, how much money you got saved? I'm like, dad, I am just paying my bills, trying to keep my cars running. That's the way it goes, buying food for the family. Back to where, what's the purpose of all that, though? What did I learn through all that? I wouldn't trade any of that for anything because I learned to trust the Lord. I didn't go into debt. So at one point, I was in debt when I married my wife, and I worked my best to get out of that debt. I sacrificed a lot of things to get out of debt, and I still think that's the way to go. And through that, when you do that, Trusting the Lord that way, God does a work in you, and you learn he'll provide in ways you can never imagine. But when you go get alone, you've just shut that door, and you've shut that avenue of God doing a work in you. So you trust him, and things look bleak, and you don't let anybody know, and see him move. Hey, you start to figure out when the prayer comes and answers, because never, he never let us down. He cares for me. He really does care for me. And he'll give me all I need. And that's the wisdom I think James is saying that you need to have to let verses 2 to 4 work. So James is saying the world may boast of what they have, but he's saying you can have something much greater to boast of, your exalted position in Christ. So Paul said he was privileged to preach this to the Gentiles. He said, the grace of God has given me the privilege to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And he didn't mean a big bank account. The unfathomable riches of Christ. We're saying the purpose of trials is what? What have we talked about? It's character development that God wants to do in you. You miss out on that. You miss out on that endurance and spiritual maturity that God wants to produce in you. Because what you're doing is you're making this side of heaven everything, aren't you? That's what you're doing. I got to get this credit card debt. You got credit card debt. I got to get a loan. I got to have all these things. Because everybody else has it and I'm starting to feeling left out. But what is more important? This side of heaven. What's more important? We're sojourners here, aren't we? Isn't it more important to have your heart developed, learn to trust and to love the Lord Jesus Christ? Far more important than having a new car, a new house, or running up credit card debt. Because God is preparing our souls for heaven. And you short circuit that. So now moving on here in verse 10, he says, but the rich... He doesn't say rejoice again, but it's implied. He says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich, let him rejoice in that he is made low or humiliated because as the flower of the grass says he shall pass away. So he's telling the rich person, he's saying, hey, buddy, don't you boast in all your riches and your social standing, but in the fact that you are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and all these poor despised a lot of them were slaves that's who you're fellowshipping with now calling them brother and sister 
And for a rich person, that can be very humiliating, can it? It can be. So in the world's eyes, it's like, why would you have anything to do with those kind of people? That's the way it is. So I'm telling you, I've experienced that. I used to go to downtown Louisville, hand out tracts. Hand out tracts to people, try to talk to them if I could. And the poor people, they generally, if they didn't take it, at least they would be polite for the most part. They were the ones I had conversations with. I'm telling you, the upper class people, and they were around there because we were around shopping areas that was mixed, a mixed crowd. They literally despised the ground you walk on. I had taken that track, and what are you doing out here? Keep your Christianity to yourself. I'm saying you could feel it. Look at you like you're a lowlife. Most of my work was for upper income people. And here's the thing, I could share my testimony with them. That's a lot of times how I would approach witnessing to them. Share my testimony with them, and I'm standing there in painting clothes, <laughs> and they're looking at me like, you needed help. <laughs> but occasionally, the conversation would go to where I'd be like, no, you are a big a sinner as anyone else, and you need to be, however all that would go. And I mean, I'm talking, I could tell you a few people highly offended. <gasps> One lady literally gasped. And I didn't say it mean. You're talking to me like that? Because I'm like, you know, the painter. <laughs> and who are you? I'm like, well, okay. Just doing what the Lord wants me to do. Because you know what? For her to talk like that or to say she got born again or to witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, guess where that's not going to fly real well? At their social parties. Not going to fly real well at all, is it? So the thing is, though, the Bible never says, I want to make this a point, it never says that it is a sin to be rich. It doesn't say that. There were many wealthy saints in both the Old and the New Testaments, weren't there? There really were. And so riches are only sinful if you trust in them and if you can't let them go. So if you would turn back to 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul writes, charge them that are rich in this world. Now, he doesn't say charge them to give all their money away. What does he say? Charge them that they be not high-minded. That means proud or haughty. Nor they shouldn't do this. They shouldn't trust in uncertain riches, but they should trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And here's what else they should do. Verse 18, they can't hold on to those riches, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So I like what a guy said, the rich aren't called to take a vow of poverty, but they're called, in a sense, to take a vow of generosity. And that's what he's saying? You don't have to give it all away, but you need to be more than willing and able, if you see a need, to meet it. That's why God has blessed you that way. That's what it says. And reading all this, we can think that Paul and James are not talking to us, but to some Wall Street banker, somebody that owns some big business. I'm going to say, whether you know it or not, every single person sitting in this room is wealthy when compared to the rest of the world. Listen to this. If you made only, listen, $1,500 last year, some of you have to make that in a day. If, I don't know. if you only made $1,500 last year, that's more than 80% of the people on earth. 80% of the people on earth didn't make $1,500. Statistically, if you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house or an apartment, and have a reasonably reliable means of transportation, 
And if anybody doesn't have any of those things, come and see me. We'll help you. Gladly. Right? But he's saying, if you got those things, you live in a house, sufficient food, decent clothes, a reasonably reliable means of transportation, and a lot of our cars are breaking down constantly, but we still fall in that category. You got all that, you're still in the top 15%. Top 15% of the world's wealthy. If you have any money saved, a hobby that requires some equipment or supplies, a variety of clothes in your closet, two cars in any condition, and you live in your own home, you are in the top 5% of the world's wealthy. We compare everything and we tend to take our culture, our circumstances, and read that into scripture. I'm saying that's just not the way it is though. And so you tell yourself, well then there's nothing wrong with wanting to make a lot of money. I'm tired of working to make the rich wealthier and I just want a bigger slice of the pie. You say that. Well, we're in 1 Timothy 6. Look up at verses 5 through 10. And look what it says. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. And those men suppose that gain is godliness. And he says, hey, people like that from such withdraw thyself. But he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. And it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith, what? Be content. But they that will be rich. And that word means a desire with a plan. Somebody that will be rich, that's their desire. What happens to them? They fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's like I said. You think, oh man, I want to be wealthy. I'm going after all that. He's saying, that's a snare. That's trouble. That should be a danger sign. That's your goal in life. That's not a Christian goal. Verse 10, for the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. For while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. And it says they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Boy, it's that desire. I just got to have more. Got to have more. That's the problem. And I'm going to plan on how to do it. I'm spending a lot of my time planning and doing that and working and getting that. And very little time in the Bible or in prayer or in communion. Very little time in that, but a lot of time in that other. I'm an expert at it. Proverbs 28.20 says that a faithful person will have an abundance of blessings, but the one who hastens to gain riches will not go unpunished. I didn't write it. I'm just quoting it. A faithful person, faithful to the Lord, will have an abundance of blessings. He says he'll supply everything. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 6? Don't have to worry about it. Don't have to chase it like the heathens do. God knows what you need. He'll make sure you get what you need. But the one who hastens to gain riches will not go unpunished. So all of us are tempted to one degree or another or at one time or another to believe that there is security and riches. And you'll think, well, maybe money can't buy me love, but it could buy me a little peace of mind. But James is saying, wait a minute. No, he's telling the rich. He says, listen to this godly wisdom saying you've got some money and some social status he says don't boast in that don't trust in that he says rather 
You should boast in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. Rescued you from a horrible pit. He that was rich beyond measure, measure, he came into this world and died shamefully hanging on that cross, naked, didn't even have any clothes. That's what he did for us. And so he says, wealthy American Christians, which is all of us here, he says, think and boast about that, what he's done for you. So Paul was wealthy, wasn't he? He was wealthy as a Pharisee. I'm telling you he was. And he had social standing. And he gave it all up, didn't he? He said, I'm glad to give it up. I didn't just give it up. He says, I consider it dung. A stronger word than that, but that's a good word. He says, I consider it dung, all that, my wealth, my social position, all of that, he said, just so I could know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other thing was, he wasn't ashamed about it either, was he? He boasted. He went before kings, shared his testimony time after time after time. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ did for me. This is my boast. You never hear him talking about what he was before. Not in a good way. Say, now I've had the light shine. I've seen the light, Paul would have said. And James is saying the wisdom of God will teach you that being rich, it can be a trial. Like I said, it can tempt you to forget about God. But godly wisdom, here's what godly wisdom will do. If you're a rich person or a poor person, it'll cause you to quit living by what appears to be true and live instead by what is the truth of the matter. And here's what the truth of the matter is. Here's what James goes on to talk about. Now, he focuses on the rich, but it would be true for the poor, too. And the truth of the matter is your riches don't give you any lasting security. Because go back to James chapter 2. Look what he says there. Here's the big because. He says, verse 10, but the rich in that he's made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, the flower thereof faileth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. And so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. He's saying our life, rich man and poor man, is like a wild flower. Springs up in the morning. Now, those, from what I understand, those wildflowers over there in Palestine, they look beautiful. But when the sun comes up and by noon on, the heat, it withers them and they die and they look nothing like they did in the morning. And it doesn't take long. Beautiful, rich and prosperous flowers in the morning and in a short time, their beauty is withered never to return. So listen to this translation of verse 11 for the sun rises with its heat and dries up the meadow the petal of the flower falls off and its beauty is lost forever so also the rich person in the midst of his pursuits will wither away and what we need to notice here is sometimes you'll read people they're trying to make this like their riches will pass away that's not what james is saying here james is saying the rich person will pass away Look at what it says there. Look at the end of verse 10. It says, because as the flower of the grass, what does it say? He shall pass away. And then look at the end of verse 11. So also shall the rich man fade away or pass away in his ways. So guess what doesn't go away? Those riches, they'll remain and they go to somebody else. And James is saying the wisdom of God for the rich person and all of us will see that life is 
fleeting. And he's saying, get your eyes on the true riches. Isn't that what he's telling us here? Jesus said in Luke 12, take heed and beware of covetousness. If your riches, he basically goes on to say, if your riches are what you measure, what you have, or what you desire to have, if that's how your riches are, you're a lost soul, he says. Because he goes on to tell a parable about a rich man who had earned great riches and placed his trust in them. They were his goal and they were his God. And here's what it says. The rich man says to himself, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That was his attitude. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which you have provided? And so he that lays up treasure for himself, and so is he that lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich towards God. That's the same thing James is saying here, isn't it? The exact same thing. Because Jesus was his half-brother. And I'm sure he heard him say those things. So you have to love the heart of James here. I'm saying, you know, this teaching, I'm not saying any of it's been easy because it's like getting a bucket of cold water thrown on your head, isn't it, at times? But he loves us enough to speak in terms of what is important and what is crucial. And he does it in a way, in a language that we can understand. He uses these illustrations out of nature. He's saying the things in life that really matter is what James is talking about. Now, I understand everybody would have really just loved to heard a faith message today, throw your Bible up in the air. But what are the things that really matter? So we go consecutively through books. You know what that does? It makes me preach on things I might avoid at times or think, well, I'd like to have a little happier message. But we're going to get the full counsel of God, aren't we? And it's critical to get that. James isn't talking about, there's a place you can go get this, your best life now. You'll get that week after week after week after week. Your best life now. And James isn't giving us that at all, is he? He's saying he's giving us the wisdom to how we can have our best life in eternity and that is by looking beyond your best life now. Not getting caught up in that. That's the point. Bear with me here. If you would turn, I want us to just read two Psalms. If you would turn to Psalm 52. Psalm 52, and beginning in verse 1. We'll read the entire, it's only nine verses. This is when David says this against Doag, who did him wrong for money. He says, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. He says, your tongue devises mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You lovest evil more than good and lying rather than to speak righteousness. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. And he says, God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. The righteous also shall see and fear because they'll see the deceitfulness of Doag was wrong, and God judged him, and they'll laugh at him. But look at verse 7. And lo, this is the man, Doag, that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But David says, that is not me, and this is not us. Look what he goes on to say in verse 8. But, he said, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever, and I will praise thee forever because you have done it, and I will wait on thy name, for it is good before thy saints. Oh, no. 
Doag was wrong. Trusting in riches will get you nowhere. And if you would just turn back to Psalm 49, just a page back or two in your Bible. And look what it says. Here's some wisdom. Maybe James had read this. Psalm 49 in verse 1 it says, Hear this all ye people, give ear all you inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. He says, My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline my ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother. So no matter how much money you have, no matter how much influence you have, none of that will redeem a soul. Nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceases forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and they leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. And this their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But... God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away, and his glory shall descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee. When thou doest well to thyself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understands not is like the beast that perish. And James is saying, look, you can be in honor and you can have wealth, but have wisdom. Have understanding. Know that you are going to perish. Don't be like those rich people that they're going to name their lands after them because they want it to continue forever. He's like, no, none of that continues forever, including us. Life is fleeting. He'll talk about that later in this epistle. So I want to end with this. James is doing what? He's bringing the rich man and the poor brother together. And he's saying, I want you guys to glory, to boast, to rejoice. And he's telling the poor brother, look, you just look away from your poverty. And he tells the rich guy, you look away from your riches. And both of you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross, to what he did for you. Because that is the great leveler, isn't it? Haven't we heard that many times that the ground is level? at the foot of the cross. So let me end with this. So I'm telling you, one of the most moving sights I think I've seen is a video you can watch on YouTube about Jackie Pollinger chasing the dragon, doing her work among those heroin addicts, hardcore poor people in a mess, and they get saved. But in their humiliation, in their being saved, these guys have a joy and a countenance about them. And through that, there was lawyers, bankers, businessmen that knew what happened to these men. And they end up worshiping together because of the testimony, because of the power of God they saw in these men's lives. And you watch that video and you can see these guys.
They show them, some of them before and after, they were hardcore, had hard countenances. And there was just a joy about them. They're spirit-filled. Won't get into that today, but here's what they did. They hear them singing in their own language, Don Moen's song, Give Thanks. We know how it goes. Give thanks with a grateful heart. This is what I think James is saying. Give thanks to the Holy One, rich and poor. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ His Son. And now, let the weak say what? I am strong. And let the poor say, I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Isn't that what it would be? Amen. Amen. Let that be our song today. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would put before us, no matter what our state is, that the important thing to see, whether we have riches or we seem like we have none, that the important thing to know is that we know you, that we've experienced your mercy, your loving kindness, and your forgiveness, and our eyes are on you and on the cross, and that is where our boast will be. And I ask that you'll burn this word in our hearts today and that we'll have our priorities straight in this life. And I just ask you, Lord, you'll make us a generous, giving people that are willing to help out others that have needs and to look to you and to boast in our ability to do that because of what you have done for us. And I thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us today and that you've spoken to us. And we do all that in Jesus' name. Amen.